0: It was mentioned that this uh, particular day, this very day, is the 67th anniversary of the White Oak congregation. It had its beginning in 1947, and uh, Ola Bell was telling me that she and her husband, and they were three months old at the time, sat out there in the gravel outside the greenhouse, I think that was initially the building, and not everybody could get in there, so they were sitting outside on november second nineteen forty seven 2nd, uh, and all they had was a what'd you say a monkey heater a monkey heater? I have no clue what a monkey heater is at all but <laughs> but but I was only one year old at that time, so i there's a, i think those things must have passed out of existence by the time I was old enough to have any consciousness of monkey heaters but uh do what? You had a monkey heater? Okay. We might have had one, but I just don't remember. Yeah, all probably did. We probably did. <laughs> but uh, I do remember that um, this congregation uh, had its beginning following a tent meeting uh, right over here uh, in the parking, what is the parking lot over here. There was a big oak tree, J.C. said, over there at that time. And Brother W.J. Lemons, Willie Lemons, as he was better known, preached that meeting. And So I do have a connection with White Oak, going back to Brother Lemons because he preached on two different occasions, two different time periods in my hometown congregation of Smithville, Tennessee. He preached for us twice during two different periods. was very close to my family. was one of the preachers who preached my dad's funeral and baptized my older sister. And they said when I was a little boy, they would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be a red-headed preacher like Brother Lemons. (laughs) <laughs> he was redheaded, <laughs> so ultimately I I was blessed to be able to do that, but he was quite a man, and uh, his brother Charlie was a gospel preacher as well, and Willie and Charlie married twin girls. They both they married twins, Ellie and Nellie, I believe, Huh? and Charlie preached here, that's right. Charlie actually preached here during the history of the congregation here, so uh, a lot of wonderful... Uh, Memories. Garnet Randolph, Marion's husband, was one of the song leaders in that uh, meeting, the tent meeting that they had. Of course, Garnet served as an elder here. So, a very strong history of standing for truth, loving the truth, preaching the truth here at the White Oak uh, congregation. And we are thankful for so many who have loved the truth and have stood for the truth and continue to, even to this day and time, here at White Oak. And of course that truth must be preached and taught and practiced in its entirety. As Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And sometimes there are things with which we have to deal that are certainly not pleasant, but certainly they are God's will. And as many of you know, most of you know, we have been involved in a very prayerful and careful Uh, effort to restore the wayward who have left our fold and who need to come home to their first love. And we've preached some lessons along these lines and we have asked our members to do all they can and many efforts are being made and we have seen fruit in one restoration uh, since these efforts, uh, concentrated efforts, began. But we want these efforts to reach more people and bring more fruit but whether they bring forth fruit in terms of the return of the wayward, it is nonetheless God's will that we make every effort and exhaust every effort lovingly to do God's will to bring them home. Would anyone deny that the Bible teaches parents to discipline their children? Certainly not. Proverbs 22.6, the Old Testament passage, tells us to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it ephesians six one children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, and so the admonition to obey parents obviously implies that parents are to be those who discipline their children, and much is said in Old and New Testament along these lines, but think about the purpose of that discipline. It is truly loving discipline, and it is truly discipline that is for the good of the child. It's designed to produce maturity. It's designed to produce respect for authority, not only the parents' authority, but authority in every realm. And think about the motive for that discipline. That motive is certainly on the part of right-thinking parents, love. Deep love. If you really love your children, you're going to discipline Your children. And yet, in many ways, our world today, for the most part, has failed to understand that principle. And someone has said that today's dilemma is that everything in the modern home is controlled with a switch except the children. And there is truth to that, tragically. And perhaps this is the reason many do not understand that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, and there we see clear evidence of the statement that we have just made, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. To the churches of Asia, much is said that is a commendation, and much is said that is a condom. Nation. As many as I love, though, the Lord says, He rebukes and chastens. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And He says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's Revelation 3 at verse 19. And it is said in the context of the letter to the Laodicean church. The church that indeed was condemned, not commended. And he says, I counsel you, verse 18 of Revelation 3, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You see, the Laodicean church church was a church that believed everything was just fine with them. They were rich in many ways, but poor as Job's turkey, as the expression goes, and so many others. In the most important sense, they were poor spiritually. But did the Lord hate them? No, he loved them. And because he loved them, he said through John, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Revelation 3:19. as many as I love. Think about that word love as we analyze that verse. We know that the word love is used in various ways in scripture. There are different words in scripture for love. There's the agape love, which is often used, which is The highest degree of love, it is the love that we're to have even for our enemies because it is a love based upon the worthiness, the value, the intrinsic value of the object of our love. And what is more valuable than a soul, a precious soul? Nothing is as valuable as a soul. Jesus made it clear that a man shouldn't sacrifice anything for his soul. What if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What will you give in exchange for your soul? And so the human soul, the spirit, is priceless. It will live eternally. It is absolutely priceless. And so even our enemies, obviously, those who would do us in, they have a soul. And so we're to, we're to do that which is best for them in that regard of exhibiting that agape love, that highest form of love. But then there's also the word phileo in the New Testament. And that is a word that involves deep affection, That is a word that is a warm, tender expression. That is fraternal love. That is love that has emotion tied to it. And it's the very word that John uses here as he expresses the words of Jesus in Revelation 3.19. As many as I love. What kind of love then did he have for the church at Laodicea? A deep, warm affection, an emotional attachment to them, Though they were not living and doing as they should, he still had that love for them. And he said, because I do, I'm rebuking you. And that word rebuke in the text means to find fault with. He found fault with them. It means to correct. And then he says, and chasten. I rebuke and chasten. And that word chasten is the idea of discipline chastisement, correction, to inflict punishment upon, Webster says. And if we look at Hebrews chapter 12, we see what the Hebrews writer has to say about it in regard to the fact that because the Lord loves us, He corrects us. Because the Lord loves us, He chastises us. Listen to Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. There it is again. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but for he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And then he adds in verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. But grievous, nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't despise, he says, the chastening of the Lord. What that suggests is something very important that every member of this congregation must hopefully realize and appreciate as we move forward in this lost sheep effort. And that is that our attitude toward discipline is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial because discipline is not something, as we have said before, that is carried out by the elders of the church. The process is initiated in the eldership, yes, but it is carried out by every member. And therefore, the attitude of every member is absolutely crucial to the matter of discipline. And so we ask, what is involved in discipline? And how does it relate to what is being done right now here in the White Oak congregation as we seek to restore the wayward? Well, discipline includes teaching. That's what it involves. Discipline is teaching. Discipline is teaching and preaching. Discipline is admonition. When we preach lessons on the need to attend the services of the church and and to fulfill our Christian responsibilities to the Lord, then that is discipline. That's a form of discipline. It's a form of teaching. It's a form of admonition. And then we have, when we have contact with those who are negligent, when we make contact in various ways with those who are wayward, that involves discipline. And that is being done right now and has been being done for quite some time through various efforts by the elders, through various efforts, by some of our, by our deacons, by our, by our members. But if no progress is made with that kind of discipline, effort, what do we do? The Lord tells us we are to continue to exercise further discipline. Already, since no progress in the former sense that I've just mentioned, has been made with with many. Thankfully, one has been restored. But since there has been no apparent progress to this point in time, after one letter has already been sent asking those who are wayward to please, please meet with us, please give us an opportunity to encourage you to come home to be restored to your first love, and there has been no response, then a second letter will soon be sent, and next week more will be said about that in the last part of this two-part final segment on discipline. And meanwhile, efforts need to be continually made before that second letter is sent by all of us to do all that we can to encourage those who have left the fold of safety to come home. And I believe that most based upon the information sheets with the asterisk by certain names, most if not all of you all should be aware of those about whom we are deeply concerned in this regard and who are being admonished to return to their first love. And we want every member, every member who can exert any influence at all family members and otherwise of those involved, to try to lead these individuals to see the need to repent. All of these efforts involve discipline as the Bible teaches it. We're to admonish the wayward, pray for them, help them in every way to repent. Remember Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. There the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken... In any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. You who are spiritual. Who is that? It should be every one of us. We all should desire to be spiritual and determined to be spiritually minded and to be among those who would be counted spiritual, therefore it is our responsibility. And so many of you have already been involved in trying to do just that with those about whom we're deeply concerned at this point in time. But we're doing it in a spirit of gentleness. We're doing it motivated by love, hopefully, because Jesus has given us that perfect example. As many as I love, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten but what if that erring brother or sister does not respond to the efforts that we've described thus far? Well, as we mentioned, a second letter would come. And that second letter would ultimately, ultimately lead to the culminating act of loving discipline, and that is, withdrawal of fellowship. But you know, realistically and tragically, that withdrawal of fellowship never comes in so many congregations. And there are a great many congregations probably where members have never, perhaps never heard the term itself. But even if they have, they haven't seen the practice. White Oak is not among those. We've mentioned the anniversary of this congregation. There have been many wonderful additions to the Lord's Church here at White Oak over those years. Many wonderful things have occurred and many tears have also been shed at the White Oak Church over those years I know for those who went astray and for those who had to be lovingly disciplined and yet it was done. It was done and we ought to thank God that it was. Because it's my firm conviction that the Lord truly will not bless a church that ignores a very important or any any part of His will, and discipline is a part of the Lord's will, as we'll be reminded of as we continue to study. But the church is clearly taught to withdraw its fellowship from the one guilty of bringing harm to the Lord's body, and to himself or to herself and to others by sin of which that individual will not repent. But what is that? What is withdrawal of fellowship? It's absolutely imperative that every single one of us understands what withdrawal of fellowship as the Lord intended it consists of, what it is, because we're all to be involved in it. Now we've already determined and said it's not the only form of discipline as we've seen, but it is necessary as the final step taken in an effort to what? To win back that lost soul. To win back that lost soul. The final step is not taken to excommunicate that member from the church. There's no such thing. That's a man-made doctrine. Excommunication is a man-made term and a man-made doctrine in the sense that you don't excommunicate. What you do, however, is withhold fellowship from individuals who will not repent in the hope that the withholding of that that fellowship in ways that they have enjoyed it before will bring them to their spiritual senses, cause them to realize what has been done and what they have lost and to come home. But even after that withdrawal of fellowship has occurred, if they walk through these doors, and even if they do not repent when they walk through those doors and they sit through service after service having not repented, even after having been withdrawn from, we're not going to lock the doors. We're going to encourage them not only to be here but to be here for the right reason and that is to ultimately restore their soul. No, excommunication is not what we're talking about. We are talking about, though, a very distinct change in relationship that has to occur according to Scripture in order for us to follow God's will in this respect. And, as we have said, it is to be carried out by all of the members of the congregation in order for it to be an effective means for winning the soul back to his first love. We must see the underlying reason for it before all of the members will accept it and follow the Lord's will in carrying it out. That's crucial. That underlying reason is what? Love for the sinner hatred for the sin. And until we can appreciate these principles, withdrawal of fellowship will never achieve what it was intended to achieve by the Lord. But I'll tell you this, the Lord's way will work if we follow it. The Lord's way will work. Will it always bring back that lost soul? No. But will it keep the church pure? Yes. Will it tell the community that we don't simply overlook sin? Yes. Will it cause others to recognize that indeed if they go that same way that the church will not not ignore their actions? Yes. You see, there are multiple purposes. But the ultimate purpose and the primary purpose is to hopefully restore the soul. Now, in the time remaining today, I want to look again at First and Second Corinthians, some passages here in these chapter in these two books, rather, that will help us to see the attitude the church must have toward sin and toward the sinner. I hope you're familiar with the fact that in First Corinthians chapter five, we have a man living with his father's wife, most likely his stepmother. It's actually reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Taken away from you. That is, withdrawal of fellowship. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has so done this deed, And then he says this, notice this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is by his authority, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, I'm with you also, he's saying in effect, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do what? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Withdraw your fellowship from him, in other words, deliver him to Satan in the hope that his spirit may be saved. Then he says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? There's another purpose of withdrawal of fellowship, to keep the church pure. Therefore purge out the the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are leavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator, covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's the social interaction that is prohibited. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? In other words, my concern, I can't judge those who are outside. They're not in the kingdom. They're not in the body. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. Withdraw from him. Why? Because it might bring him to a realization of his sin. Why? Because it will keep the church pure, verse 6. And if we go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see the importance of this. Because in the 2 Corinthians letter, there is clear evidence that they followed Paul's teaching and that this man, under discussion, was restored to his first love. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Now he's writing his second epistle, remember now. After writing to in in the first epistle to withdraw their fellowship. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Now listen, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. What man? He's talking about the man who was living with his father's wife. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. What's the indication? He's repented. You did the right thing and he repented. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to affirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. I've mentioned that verse before. It's a sobering passage. I wrote to you to tell you to withdraw from this man, I wrote to you, what? To put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. I've said this before. What elder in his right mind would want to go to the judgment knowing he has been disobedient to the Lord in anything the Lord commanded? And yet when it comes to the matter of withdrawal of fellowship, Paul said, I wrote to you to withdraw from this man And when I did, I wanted to see whether you would be obedient in all things. Obedient to whom? To God Almighty. Therefore, it is not something we can possibly ignore and expect to be pleasing to God. And then it goes on, verses 10 and 11. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive or if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Don't let this man be overly burdened with his guilt. He's been forgiven. He's repented. Now, forgive him. Forgive him. Because, verse 11 says, Satan will take advantage over any congregation whose attitude towards sin is not what it should be be. He'll take advantage over a congregation whose attitude towards sin is tolerant, and by the same token Satan will gain an advantage over those in the church who will not forgive when someone repents. And so when someone repents we have no no right to do anything except what? Forgive and encourage. And That's what he encouraged them to do with this man who obviously repented when they finally came to their senses at Paul's admonition and did the right thing. The point that must not be overlooked here is that Satan has the advantage. Satan has the advantage in any church where sin goes unchecked and unrebuked. How can the Lord bless such a congregation? How can he? And as we said, the result of following Paul, following Paul's command here in 1 Corinthians is seen in 2 Corinthians. And it's seen in his words further in that 2 Corinthians letter at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verses 8 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, talking about the first epistle, I do not regret it. I do not regret it, he said. Though I did regret it, for perceive, for I perceived that at the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice. They didn't like getting that letter, saying you're puffed up and you don't need to be. You need to do the right thing toward this man. And they no doubt were sorry when they revealed, when they realized Paul was rebuking them, but they were only sorry for a while. He says, verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces Now notice verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. How did that work out? What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What diligence it produced. Diligence to do what? To make things right with God. What clearing of yourselves it produced. There's fruit of your repentance, following through, apologizing. Also shows the guilt that would have characterized them if they had not done so. What indignation, that is anger with themselves probably for being lax in their discipline. What fear it produced, what kind of fear? Fear of displeasing God, fear of displeasing the Apostle Paul for that matter. What vehement desire it produced, what kind of desire? To obey Paul's command. What zeal it produced, what kind of zeal? For Paul's approval and so his presence with them could be a joyful presence once again after removing this sin from their midst. What vindication, he says. Punishment of the offender for having injured the cause of Christ. And then he says, in all things, notice it, in all things, you've truly now repented, you've cleared yourselves by doing this, and I can rejoice. God rejoices when people do His will. And what we've seen in this epistle, these epistles of First and Second Corinthians, and then in this example of discipline, can be summed up in one statement. Put away sin from among you to bring those guilty of the sin to repentance. And when they repent, forgive them, rejoice with them and for them. And God will likewise rejoice and bless you as a congregation above measure. Next week, the Lord willing, we're going to deal with the specifics of the action of withdrawal And we'll cite some other passages from the New Testament that reveal that such is truly an all-important matter. Because sometimes people say, well, in the case of someone who's left us, hasn't he already withdrawn himself? How can we withdraw from him? He's already withdrawn from us. That is a biblical impossibility. It cannot be done. And we'll see more about that. Because withdrawal, as you heard in the Corinthian exchange, the majority toward the individuals, not the individual toward the majority. In other words, it's the action of the congregation against the sinner to help him or her to come home. He can't withdraw himself. He can leave, but that does not exempt him from discipline. And we'll see more about that as we look at other passages along this line next week. Meanwhile, pray as faithful members of this church and work to do all you can to further encourage those who've left us to come home. And meanwhile, think about your attitude towards sin. What is that attitude? If you're not a Christian this morning, then you're approving sin by your disobedience and your continuation in sin. And if you are a wayward child, the same is true of you. Why not repent, turn from sin? See the joy that that turning can bring to your life and to the lives of others. If you're not a Christian, believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus to be the Christ. Be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you are here and need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to repent. Confess that sin as publicly as it's been committed as we pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely and wants you home will you come as we stand to sing